0: Now the book of Exodus, friends, is a book where it continues the account that was begun in Genesis. As someone has said, nothing is begun in Exodus and nothing is concluded in Exodus. It just continues the account. Actually there is a break, however, of three and a half centuries. You remember back in Genesis fifteen thirteen God had said to Abraham that they would spend 400 years in Egypt. Now over in Exodus 12:40 it says it was 430 years. And of course the critic always likes to point out little things like that and find an error in the Bible, a contradiction. Well actually, if you turn over to Galatians 3:16 and 17, you'd find out that the Exodus date is confirmed, but you'd note there it was 430 years from the call of Abraham, and it was 400 years from the time that God told Abraham what would happen to his offspring. You see, he didn't give him that at first. But I do want to add this rather hastily, that it's difficult to be dogmatic about the chronology of the patriarchal period. That is, when you get back that far, It's very difficult to date it. They didn't have calendars back there, and they didn't feel it was as important as we seem to think it is today, the dates. Now, we've omitted, if you'll notice, all dates in these outlines. And the reason for that is that the books of the Pentateuch I do not think that we ought to attempt to be dogmatic about dates, and therefore I do not want to put it down in black and white. Now, this book of Exodus opens with the children of Israel in Egyptian bondage. In fact, chapter 1, we find Israel in Egyptian bondage. Three and a half centuries have gone by. And they came down there, just a little group actually, we're told here in verse 5, "...and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls." For Joseph was in Egypt already, and that out of these seventy, why, it probably went up to two million one hundred thousand. Now when I get to the book of Numbers, I'll go into detail of why we assume that it was that number. In fact, that happens to be the numbering that Dr. Melvin Grove Kyle, one of the great Egyptologists of the past, he was the editor of National Geographic and of this ponderous set of books called the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. He was a great archaeologist, by the way. I had the privilege of studying it under him, and he gives the figure of 2,100,000 that went out of Egypt and 70 went down. So you see, when God said that he would multiply the seed of Abraham, God really did it. He made good. I think that you need to put with the book of Exodus, the passage back in the 46th chapter of Genesis, beginning of verse 2, the two verses there. And I'd like to read these because this gives us the background And it says, "...and God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob." And he said, "...here am I." And he said, "...I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation." Now, when the book of Exodus opens, that promise of God has been made good. Here are these people down there... 2,100,000, and that, by the way, is a minimum. It could not have been less than that. Personally, I think it could have been twice that number. Some think it was five millions came out of the land of Egypt. And again, regardless of the number, down in that land they became a great nation. But under most adverse circumstances and difficulties, as we shall see as we get into this book. The man now that comes before us is actually the author of the Pentateuch, the man who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, and Moses is the author. They are called the Mosaic system or the Mosaic law, he being the author of these books. And you are well aware, I'm sure, that the critic today assumes there were many authors, not just Moses. And that's been batted around since the days of the Grafvelthausen hypothesis that came out of Germany. You see, that came out before Nazism came out of Germany. It's interesting that when men give up the Bible, they take on some very peculiar philosophies But that was part of the rejection. We still take the position that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible, and there's good evidence that that is accurate. And therefore, we're going to have Moses come before us in this book as he does in no other book. And you find his life divided into three 40-year periods. The first 40 years in Pharaoh's palace, in Egypt, and then 40 years on the backside of the desert in Midian, and then 40 years in the wilderness as the leader of Israel. And we'll go into that, of course, when we get to it. These are some of the things that are going to be before us as we get into this book of Exodus. And by the way, we do have a book that we'd like to mention at this time. And we send these little books to those who have part in this program. We have no other way, frankly, of carrying on the program or getting out books, except just to tell folk very candidly. I don't like to use gimmicks in saying we send a book to you free, and then on the other hand say be sure and send in an offering. Well, I just think we better tell it like it is, and that is we do depend on those who believe in this program and want to continue it. Therefore, this little book, Back to Bethel, we'd like to send to you. It takes you back to Jacob and shows how God brought this man from out of the land of Haran back to Bethel and then prepared this man to go down into Egypt, where God there made of them a great nation. Now, with that in mind, let's come to this chapter where we see Israel in Egyptian bondage. And I'd like to begin reading at chapter 1, verse 1 of Exodus. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Then you have the names given Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And now we have here just the continuation with the lapse of the three and a half centuries, you see. The word that is translated here now, these are the names, could just as easily be translated and. "...and these are the names." In other words, the conjunction and would tie it back to Genesis and then would move ahead. And we have, therefore, I think a better word just to put it, "...and these are the names of the children of Israel." Now, if we're talking about grammar, why, I'm sure it would be better to say, "...now these are the names." Either one would be accurate. But and, I think, really gives the meaning here, and that is the thing we are emphasizing. And you notice, seventy souls went down into Egypt. Now we are told in verse 6, "...and Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation." We had in the conclusion of the book of Genesis the death of Joseph, but now we have the record here that all his brethren died, all that generation." So now three and a half centuries go by, and what happens? And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. And remember now the verse I read back in the 46th of Genesis, God said that they would increase, they would multiply and that they would become a great nation down in the land of Egypt. Now, that has actually taken place. Now, we come to the great change. Verse 8, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Now, a new pharaoh comes to the throne, and he never heard of Joseph. And Dr. Kyle, who knew that land, that is, land of Egypt, and its history, says at this particular time, at the time of the Exodus, that what had happened was that there was a new dynasty that rose in Egypt. The Hyksos kings had been ruling. Now, the Hyksos kings had come from out in the desert. They were nomads, Bedouin tribes, and actually related to the Israelites. And that is probably the reason that the Pharaoh in Egypt at that time was so willing to bring Joseph into such close proximity to him in ruling the land of Egypt. After the Hyksos kings, the old dynasty was able to drive out the Hyksos kings, and now the Egyptians, regular Egyptians, they came to the throne again. And there rose now a king. He never knew this man Joseph, nor did he feel any indebtedness to him at all you could understand that the others would but not the new line in fact he would be in direct opposition to him and we find here this statement and it is a sad statement in a way there rose up a new king over egypt which knew not joseph there is something that we need to keep in mind there's a tremendous lesson here i've often wondered why these movements today who specialize in reaching children have not used this verse. It should be used. There is a continual and a continuous responsibility of teaching the Word of God to each generation. Because if you don't, why, the time will come and they'll forget all about you. I've used this illustration before about the Coca-Cola man in Texas that told me, I forget how much of a bottle of Coca-Cola, a certain percent, goes for advertising. He said that that is essential. And I was kidding him. But I found 13 advertisements, 13 signs on the square in the little town I was in in Texas, and every one of them was a Coca-Cola sign. I said, that's overdoing it. He said, not so. And he mentioned Arbuckle Coffee. He said, when's the last time you saw Ken can Arbuckle Coffee? And I said, well, I remember as a boy it was quite popular. Well, he said it was, but they thought they didn't need to advertise. There arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. I was really shocked not long ago when my own daughter and my son-in-law were talking to me, and they had no knowledge of the Depression. Now, I should have been aware of that, but I actually was not aware. I mentioned something about how difficult it was during the Depression. Well, they weren't even around at that time. That's a new generation. And I think that part of the generation gap today is because a lot of these kids don't understand what some of us older folk went through. There's always a new generation coming on that never heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, it's always necessary to teach the next generation. And so there arose a generation never heard of Joseph. And at one time he was a hero. They couldn't even remove his body out of the land. Now we are told here that this new Pharaoh that arose, he said unto the people, and this is verse 9, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely. Well, his idea of dealing wisely with them is the wisdom of the world. And he says, lest they multiply, and it come to pass, that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. That was a possibility, of course, and they did present a real problem, I'm sure, to this Pharaoh. But he's using worldly wisdom to solve it. The simple matter would be to let them go, and that would solve it. But he wants them as slaves, of course. We are told here at verse 11, "...therefore they did set over them taskmasters, to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities." Python and Rameses. That was something that reveals now that they were those that were really doing the hard work. Actually, some have thought that they had something to do with the building of the pyramids. Well, I think the pyramids probably were there long before this. But certainly the city of Rameses has been excavated, and I remember Dr. Kyle brought to class one day a brick that had been taken out of that city. The interesting thing, a brick that had been made without straw, and it showed evidence of it. Then another brick that had evidence that was made with straw, so that the record that's given here is quite an accurate record. But it would be accurate if they'd never found any bricks at all. The bricks here are not thrown at the Bible. However, they rather confirm it, and that, of course, makes it interesting. They did build the cities of Ramesses Now we're told, but the more they afflicted them, they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. Now they're put in a pretty hard spot, as you can see down here in the land of Egypt. And this is exactly what God had told Abraham would happen. Now back in the 15th of Genesis verse 13 God had said he said unto abram know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs and they shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years now three things there to be a stranger in a strange land and they are there to be servants that is slaves and they shall afflict them so that these three things are already fulfilled right here, and we're just about a dozen verses in the first chapter here. Now we're told, though, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Verse 13, "...and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. In other words, they are not only making them slaves, but they are mistreating them. Now the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shephara, and the name of the other, Pua. I was very much interested to see the meaning of these two women. And the name of the first is beauty, and the name of the second one, splendor. Splendor and beauty. Have you ever noticed these silhouette pictures of Egyptians? Do these two names here grab you, my friend, when you think of those silhouettes and the pictures of the Egyptian women? Beauty and splendor. That is the thing that characterized the women in the land of Egypt. And these two apparently were women that are in official positions, a high position, and they had charge. In fact, they're the head of the nurses in the land of Egypt. They are the ones that would have charge and bring the little ones into the world. Verse 16, now this is the king of Egypt, or the Pharaoh speaking. He said, "...when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women," "...and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him, but if it be a daughter, then ye shall live." Now, this is another attempt of Satan to destroy the line that's leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, you're going to find that this goes all the way through the Bible, the Old Testament, right into the New Testament. You'll find out that several attempts were made to destroy them to exterminate them. And it's quite interesting the way that anti-Semitism has spread throughout the world. It's something that you don't seem to be able to kill it out. It's satanic in its origin, and therefore no child of God today, no Christian, could possibly have any part in anti-Semitism. And it's generally the godless that have persecuted them. And the non-Christian, now I know someone's going to say during the Dark Ages the church engaged in it. Yes, but it was the Dark Ages, you remember. They were very far from the Word of God. There was a great deal in externalities in religion. My firm conviction is that no person can study the Word of God and become anti-Semitic. This is a satanic attempt to get rid of the children of Israel. But notice how God always intervenes. Verse 17, "...but the midwives feared God." In other words, these people had borne a witness in the land of Egypt, and at least the midwives that had come in contact with the people, they feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, why have ye done this thing, and have saved the men and children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. In other words, this attempt to destroy all the male children just wasn't coming off very well in the land of Egypt. This is another political maneuver that didn't work out. Believe me, there's been many a political maneuver in our day that hasn't worked out. Verse 21, "...it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses." In other words, these two women apparently had charge of them, and they became a group that was greatly respected in the land. Now the last verse, verse 22 of chapter 1, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. Now, you see, this would soon exterminate them as a race. And the question is, is it going to succeed or work? And the fact of the matter is, I think we can already say it will not. Now, we'll see next the birth of the deliverer, that is, the birth of Moses, whom God will raise up to deliver the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. This is the great book on redemption. It reveals in actually picture form of how God today delivers us from sin and from the world and the flesh and the devil and saves us for heaven, for these people are to be brought into the land later on. Now, friends, we come today to the second chapter of the book of Exodus, and if you have your Bible, will you turn there with us? Because we want to begin right there, and we would appreciate very much having you turn to this passage. It'll make it more meaningful to you, and if you have the notes and outlines to follow along with them, and the books that we offer from time to time. For this one, the one on Jacob back to Bethel. That gives you the background of this man who came down into Egypt, 70 souls in all, his family. And now we find them here in the book of Exodus as we begin it. It just continues the story. But there's been a hiatus of about three and a half centuries. There's been this period of three and a half centuries, and the people of Israel are now slaves in the land of Egypt, and that was according to the way God had predicted it to this man, Abraham. This is the way that God had told him. We have brought before us now Moses, the deliverer. In fact, the first 11 chapters here, we have the deliverer. The first chapter was slavery of Israel in Egypt. Now we have in this chapter 2, the birth of Moses, and the first 40 years in Pharaoh's palace. And then when we get to chapter 3, we'll see the call of Moses, and his second 40 years in Midian and the incident there at the burning bush, and then... We have the return of Moses to Egypt in chapter 4, and the announcement of the deliverance of Israel, and then the rest of the book deals with that period. We have the deliverance then in chapters 12 through 14 by blood and power. And then we have them marching to Mount Sinai in chapters 15 to 18, and we have the giving of the law in chapters 19 through 24. And then the blueprint and construction of the tabernacle in chapters 25 to 40. I'm just giving you the outline of this very marvelous book of Exodus where nothing has begun, nothing ended. It's just a continuation of the story that was begun in Genesis, and we'll follow it when we get into Leviticus and the book of Numbers. But this is the great book on redemption, the deliverance of the children of Israel, and we're going to see that. Now, I feel like that along with this story, what we need is to have the other accounts concerning Moses and we'll be filtering them in here from time to time. And we have the story of Moses over in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And frankly, this is, shall I say, just a capsule account of the book of Exodus, beginning with Moses here, and that's in Hebrews 11, verse 23. Let me read this, and we'll have a background for what we're going to look at. esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them." By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. Now, that is the record of Exodus, actually, that's put in Hebrews 11 in a rather capsule account. Now, we widen it out here in this book, and let me begin reading now with Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. "...and there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife a daughter of Levi." That is, to me, a very wonderful way that Moses gives his own record. He gives a very modest account. And that's one reason I'm turning to these other sections where we have a mention of Moses, because he certainly is very humble in the way that he presents it. In other words... I'm sure most of us would want to tell about our father and mother in a great deal of detail. He doesn't even mention them by name. These were just ordinary folk. They were in slavery. They were members of the tribe of Levi, and it's just the same old story. We're going to find it again and again in the Word of God, and that is the old story of a man sees a woman and falls in love with her and tells her so. And she loves him. And they get married and they have a child. That's getting right down to the nitty-gritty folk. And that's what human life is all about, to tell the truth. And that's the story that is shared. Later on, we're given their name. And I have asked this question of classes. And I've also heard it asked on radio years ago when they had these Bible quizzes. Who is Hamram and Jockey bed? And boy, they scratch their heads. And folks say, well, never heard of them. Well, that's the name of the man and the woman here of the tribe of Levi, the father and mother of Moses. We'll pick up that name when we get to the sixth chapter. Now, will you notice, "...and the woman conceived and bare a son. When she saw that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months." Now, that's all it's said about him. He was a good, healthy child. That's all Moses is saying here. And I'm sure that many of us would like to tell about what a precocious child we were when we were little, and most of us feel that way about it. But Moses, notice how reticent he is in giving his own record. Verse 3, "...and when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch, put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank." There are several things that we need to comment about here. I think the first thing that's quite evident is that he was not only a good, healthy child, he had a good set of lungs. And they could hide him at first. But there came the day when little Moses could really scream at the top of his voice. And what a... Contrast, that is, to him later on when he pleads to the Lord that he can't speak, you know, for the Lord. And I'm afraid a great many of us were good at crying as a baby, but we don't do so well today for the Lord. Well, she has to do something about it now. May I say that there are a lot of pious folk today that would have done it different than Jacobed did it. I think that some of these folk today would have said, well, we're just going to trust the Lord, <laughs> May I say that's wonderful to say that, but really do you trust the Lord when you actually are playing the fool? She'd have been foolish to have kept this child in the house there when a guard passing by one of the slave drivers, why he'd have heard the child. It'd been absurd. Well, somebody I know would come forth and say, well, you know that the child wouldn't cry when the slave driver went by. How do you know? May I say to you, Faith is not a leap in the dark, as I heard liberals say years ago. If it's a leap in the dark, don't make the leap, friends. God asks you to believe that which is good and solid. And he's never asked you to do anything foolish. When you believe God, you believe God, friends, and not some silly type of circumstance. God expects us to use our good old consecrated gumption, we need a lot of good religious gumption today, and she does a sensible thing. She makes a little ark, and she puts Moses in it. This woman now is acting in a sensible way, and that's an evidence she's trusting God. Now, not only that, and his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him? So she puts the little sister down there. Now, again, she could have put him down there and said, Oh, I trust the Lord. I'll just let him go on. I remember that a mother that I talked to about her son years ago. Well, may I say that the boy's been in prison since then. And I told her what I thought that she ought to do. And she said, Well, she didn't feel like that was trusting the Lord. Well, what she did is very foolish. It wasn't really trusting the Lord. Let's be very careful. This pious nonsense today is not trusting the Lord at all. Now, she could put him down there in the bulrushes and said, Oh, I just leave him there in the hands of the Lord. But she just happened to put Miriam, his sister, his elder sister, to watch over him down there. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. This is marvelous to me. Here's where the hand of the Lord now is revealed. The Lord's going to intervene, but you've got to be sensible first. She's been sensible. And her maidens walked along by the river's side, and when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. Now, she came down to the Nile River to wash. I have several comments to make there. I went to the place that they say was the place where Moses was put in the bulrushes. Well... My comment is that that would be no place for Pharaoh's daughter to take a bath. She'd be dirtier coming out than she would be going in. That's the first comment. The second is, it sure is a public place. And I don't think Pharaoh's daughter went to a place like that in that day. They were very uncivilized back there. They didn't believe in nudism as we do today. We are, you know, free and and believe in freedom today and expressing ourselves and communicating and opening up our minds and all that nonsense back there they were very uncivilized, as you can see. So I'm sure that it was a much more secluded spot than was shown me. But anyway, the important thing here is that God's overruling now. You see, God can intervene. And it's very well that Miriam, the sister of Moses, was there. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And at that moment, it was the right time for the child to cry. In fact, at that very moment... The Lord pinched little Moses, and he let out a yelp. And God brought together two things, I tell you, friends, that he's put together in this world. One is a baby's cry in a woman's heart, and Pharaoh's daughter there just couldn't pass it by. And she had compassion on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrews' children.'" Then said his sister, and she's right there to make the suggestion to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee. That was a very helpful suggestion of Miriam. And by the way, Miriam is not going to let her young brother Moses forget that later on, by the way. You see, this is a very human story we are reading Let's get rid, when we read the Bible, friends, of all this pious nonsense, and get down to the nitty-gritty and find out what God's really trying to tell us today, because I think he's speaking to us on every page of this book. Now, will you notice, "...and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go!" It was a good suggestion. "...and the maid went and called the child's mother." My friend, this is a real turn of events, and it shows how God really moves when we act sensibly." and moved by faith sensibly. Now the very mother of the child is called to nurse her own baby and is going to be paid for it. You can't beat that, friends. And you can't beat God when He is really moving in our hearts and lives. Now notice this. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it, and the child grew. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now, don't let that go by, because that is very meaningful and includes a great deal. And she called his name Moses, for she said, because I drew him out of the water. And the word means to draw out. She had drawn him out of the water, and that was the meaning of his name. Now, this is very important for us to see, and I must take just a moment here to dwell on this. And he spent 40 years yonder in the court of Pharaoh, and he was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And at that time, by the way, there was a queen that was childless, and Moses would have been the next Pharaoh, by the way. And notice this, verse 11, "...it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren." Now, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But what I'm trying to do is cover these first 40 years of the life of Moses. Now, he spent them in the court of Pharaoh. And he was being raised there. Several things I'd like to say about that period that must have been true. He was trained in Egypt, so much so that he looked like an Egyptian, talked like an Egyptian, acted like an Egyptian. And he was recognized as that when he went to Midian, as we shall see. Now, obviously, he was educated in the Temple of the Sun, the great university of that day. And this Temple of the Sun was a great university, although it didn't prepare him to serve God. There are a great deal that can be said about that Temple of the Sun. We underrate the Egyptians and what they knew and what they did. First of all, let me say that this university and the Egyptians knew a great deal, more than we give them credit for. For instance, they knew the exact distance to the sun. Their astronomy is phenomenal, what they knew about the universe that we live in. They did not take the position, as scientists did later on, that the earth was flat. They didn't work on that theory at all. It's quite interesting. These Egyptians had a real knowledge, and they also knew a great deal about chemistry. That's evident from their fact, of the way that they embalmed the dead we have no process like that today at all and also their coloring now i looked at some of the colors when i was in the museum in cairo i spent a little time in there and if i ever go back to cairo then the only reason i'd ever want to go back would be to go to that museum they have a wealth of material the thing that impressed me was the workmanship was the coloring why those colors are brighter today than any colors that we have. So much so that, very candidly, I'm confident many of these paint companies, Sherwin-Williams Paint Company, would give anything in the world. They knew the formula that they used back in those days for colors. They're bright and beautiful and startling and clear. And that's after about 4,000 years. And I have to paint my house about every four years. I wish I could get some of the paint that they used back in those days. These people knew a great deal. They had a library that was tremendous. And so this man Moses, we are told, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That's the thing that you remember Stephen said. I'd like to turn to that, by the way, over in the seventh chapter of Acts at verse 22. Listen to this. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Don't underestimate Moses, friends. He was outstanding, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them but they understood not. In other words, all the training in Egypt did not prepare him to deliver the children of Israel. And so he went out, and when he saw one of his brethren being persecuted or being beaten by one of the slave drivers, why, he killed him. And he looked this way and that way. trouble of it is he didn't look up. That's where he should have looked to God. And the Lord would have forbidden him to do a thing like this, because Moses is 40 years ahead of God in delivering the children of Israel. And therefore, God now is going to put him out on the backside of the desert. And when he went out the second day, the old two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy felon? He said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. In other words, Moses was a murderer. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, he spent 40 years in Egypt. And that training did not prepare him for what was to come. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian. You see, Moses passed as an Egyptian. An Egyptian. He certainly had the background for it. "...an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and also drew water enough for us, and watered the flock. He said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread with us." And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. Now, she is given to Moses... And he takes a bride. And it's interesting, many of the men of the Old Testament are figures of Christ. Not in all detail. It couldn't be. Certainly not in the fact Moses was a murderer. Christ was not. He was a Savior. And Jonah is a figure of Christ in resurrection, but certainly not in running away from God. And so Moses here, in the time of his rejection, Why, he gets a bride, and we are living in the day of the rejection of Christ. But he's calling out a bride out of this world today, and that's the church. And so we find him now down in the land of Midian, and 40 years goes by. There's always been a question relative to Moses' marital state. I personally feel like that that's one of the things that Moses more or less passes over. I'm sure he must have loved his wife, but the record that we have doesn't reveal a very wonderful relationship at all. I would presume that it was not the best in the world. Here is this man now that's down in the land of Midian on the backside of the desert, getting his B.D. degree, backside of the desert degree, and there God was training him to deliver his people. We are told, though, in verse 21, And Moses was content to dwell with the man, that is, the priest there in Midian, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. And Zipporah means sparrow. She must have been a little thing. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a stranger in a strange land came to pass in process of time that the king of egypt died and the children of israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto god by reason of the bondage and god heard their groaning and god remembered his covenant with abraham with isaac and with jacob and god looked upon the children of israel And God had respect unto them. Now, God is going to come down and deliver the children of Israel now. And Moses has been trained to be that deliverer. Now, the question, of course, arises, why did God do this? Now, if you have any notion that the reason God did this was because of the superiority of these people, then I think you'd be entirely wrong. And God did not come down to deliver him because he said, "'My, these children of Israel are so superior to the Egyptians, and they've been true to me. They've not gone into idolatry, and they've served me faithfully, and they are a lovely people.'" May I say to you that God never said that because it wouldn't have been true. These people were not faithful to God. They did not serve him. They did go into idolatry. And you'll recall when they got out into the wilderness, they couldn't wait to make a golden calf. Just soon as Moses got out of sight, why Aaron started making the golden calf for them. They had gone into idolatry. They were away from God. They were in slavery. Now, why would God come down and deliver them? Because they're in a helpless, hopeless Position. They are in the position where, unless somebody will intervene on their behalf, they're through, they're Using the common colloquialism of the day, they've gone down the tube. They are not even savable. They cannot be salvaged, it would look like, at this particular juncture. Well, then why did God come down? Well, he tells us here two reasons. God says, I heard their groaning. (laughs) The thing that appealed to God was their desperate condition, their hopeless condition. That's what appealed to God. And he saw that. And for that reason, it appealed to him. And then the second reason is, he says here, that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, I made a covenant with Abraham that I'd bring his offspring after the 400 years, I'd bring them back into the land. God says, I intend to keep my covenant. What I say I'll do, I will do. And God confirmed that covenant with Isaac and then again with Jacob. Now, these are the two reasons that God came down and delivered these people. It was their desperate, hopeless condition. It was that which appealed to the heart of God, And the second thing is, God had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why do you think God has redeemed you? That is, if you are redeemed, why do you think God has redeemed me? Well, same reason. God found nothing in us that called forth his salvation. He makes it very clear that when he saves us... It's not because any merit is in us at all. Actually, it's without a cause. That is the thing that Paul says in Romans, the third chapter, verse 24. Let me read verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely. And that word freely means without a cause. It's the same word our Lord used when he said, they hated me without a cause. Now, you and I are justified without a cause. That is, there's no reason in us. God didn't look at us and say, "My, you know, you're white and you're Protestant and you're lovely and you're superior and I'm going to redeem you. The fact of the matter is, It's the reverse of that. God saw us in the blackness and darkness of sin and ignorance. He saw us hopelessly lost. And we were not able to save ourselves. And so we're told here, being justified without a cause by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And God saves us by grace... Actually, it, He doesn't save us by love. He loved us, but love didn't save us. Love provided a Savior. God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that you and I might have a redemption. And we are saved, therefore, without a cause, by His grace through the redemption That's in Christ Jesus. That's the basis on which God saves us today. And I hope none of you listening in have any notion that God found anything in you that was worthy of salvation. Now, I think that a great many people think that, well, God did save me as a sinner, but he saw what a lovely person I would become. Did you know that you never become a lovely person? I hate to say that, but you don't become a lovely person. There's no good in that old nature. Paul says, I know within my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. Now, will you believe God that there's no good in you at all? My friend, there's nothing in you that's good. Oh, I know that hurts a great many people. That's a shoe that really pinches, isn't it? To think that God didn't find any good in us and there's never going to be any good in us. And that's the reason you and I have to have a new nature. That's the reason for that. Because, friends, you and I just can't produce anything good. He found nothing in us, nothing whatsoever. And he never expected that that old nature to ever produce anything good. In fact, he's eventually going to get rid of it. We need a new nature. And that is the thing that caused God to come down and deliver these people. There was no good in it. No good at all. He redeemed them because he heard their cry. And God saw our desperate condition and saved us. And then God had a covenant. I mentioned it a moment ago in that most familiar verse John three sixteen. Long before I came into the world, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And the Son agreed to come and die. And the Father agreed to save any that would trust Jesus. And he didn't wait for me to get here to talk it over with Vernon McGee and say, Now look here, boy. What do you think about this plan? If it pleases you, I'll go through with it. God didn't do that. God says, and I want to be brutally frank with you. God says, here it is. Take it or leave it. This is my salvation that I offer you. He made a covenant. And anyone that'll trust Christ, he'll save them. A the little Scotch lady who had worked hard, taken in washings years ago, sent a boy away to the university. And he came home for vacation. And that was in the days when the university was going modern and liberal. And so when he came, why, he had a few doubts. And he was a little arrogant, you know. But he didn't really want his mother to know too much. But one morning she was fixing his breakfast. She's telling about how wonderful God was to save her, and she knew she was saved. And this young fellow just couldn't take any more of it. So he said, look, Mama, you don't seem to realize how really small you are in this universe and that you really don't amount to very much. Then he gave her quite a lecture on astronomy, how big the universe was and how little she was. And he said, why, if you lost your soul, God wouldn't miss it at all. It wouldn't amount to anything. Well, she didn't say anything. She just kept waiting on the boy till finally she got everything on the table. Then she sat down and she said, I've been thinking over, son, what you said. You were right. My little soul doesn't amount to much. And if I lose it, I wouldn't lose much. <laughs> and God wouldn't lose much. But says, you know, if he doesn't save me, he's going to lose more than I would lose. The boy says, what do you mean? Well, She said he promised that if I would trust Jesus, he'd save me. And he'll lose his word. He'll break his word. He'll lose his reputation and his character if he doesn't make good. You're right. I don't lose much, but he's going to lose a great deal. And friends, God's not going to lose a great deal. God's going to make good. And that's the thing that he's saying. Not that the children of Israel are attractive, but he is saying that he's come down now to redeem them because he has heard their cry, and that appealed to him. There's nothing lovely that appealed in those people, and there's nothing lovely in us that causes him to save us. And he did make a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God has agreed to save any that will trust Jesus. Jesus. Because it was on that condition that he came to this earth to die. God so loved. And it's that love provided a redemption. And God doesn't save by love. He saves by grace. Now, grace is love in action. It's easy to sit on the sidelines and talk about loving. God didn't do that. God's demonstrated his love to us today. Now, will you notice the last verse? And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Now, we come to the third chapter of the book of Exodus. Now, in the third chapter, we have this very arresting story of the burning bush. It's the call of Moses, and the second forty years in Midian now comes to an end. And this burning bush is the turning point, of course. Now, let me begin reading at verse 1. Now, this is chapter 3 of Exodus. Have you ever noticed the great chapter threes of the Bible? I've often wanted to run a series on the great third chapters of the Bible. But there's so many things I've never been able to get around to preach on that are in the Word of God. Genesis 3, John 3, Romans 3, and here is Exodus 3, and it's the burning bush. Now, will you notice, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Now, that bush has always, frankly, been considered a picture of the nation Israel. They've been in the fire of persecution from the very beginning. Here they are in it right now, down in the land of Egypt. And down through the centuries, that's been their experience. They've been in the fire, but like that burning bush, they've never been consumed. And isn't that interesting? Other great nations that have never gone through the fire as they have, have already disappeared. By the way, when was the last time you saw a Midianite? He's down in the land of Midian. Have you seen the flag of Midian? Do you know anything about the government of Midian? I must confess that I know nothing about this. It's gone. It's disappeared, friends. But the burning bush is certainly typical of these people. Now, will you notice? And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And here, the angel of the Lord, in my book, in the Old Testament, is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ." Now, I'm not even prepared to debate that. There are certain convictions that I've come to in my ministry that I just don't go back and debate them anymore. I'm not prepared to debate whether 2 plus 2 equals 4. They told me that at school. I accepted it. Been working on that supposition now for over half a century. And it's worked out all right, so if you don't think 2 plus 2 equal 4, you go to somebody else to argue it, and don't come to me, because to me, 2 plus 2 equal 4. And the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, if you haven't come to that point, then I'm not prepared to argue with you, although I think I could give you my argument. But the important thing is to get the great message that is here. Now, will you notice? And behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And this burning bush represented, we believe, the nation Israel. And Moses turned aside to see why the bush was burning but was not consumed. And today, one of the greatest proofs of the Word of God is the existence, actually, of the nation Israel. It was years ago that the emperor of Germany, I think it was Frederick the Great, that asked his chaplain one day when there was a lull in business, he says, what is the greatest proof that the Bible is the Word of God and that proof you will have to locate in my kingdom? What is it? And without a moment's hesitation, the chaplain said, The Jews, sir, he is proof. He's the burning bush that ought to cause the unbeliever to turn aside take a look. This is amazing that he has existed down through the centuries. Here for about 3,500 years, from the days of Moses down to the present hour, He's been in existence. Uh, The nations have come and gone, and he's attended the funeral of all of them, but he is still around. And so Moses turned aside, and God spoke to him out of the burning bush. He had to correct Moses' manners. Although he'd brought up in the court of Pharaoh, he didn't know enough to take off his shoes in the presence of a holy God. And I'm afraid that a great many folk today get familiar with God. We have today a new approach, we are told. We must learn to identify with this age and adopt a new vocabulary. May I say, it's absolute nonsense. One of these hippies came up to me down in Florida, a cute little girl. In fact, she was beautiful. She had the beads and a burlap bag, it looked like, for a cloak. And by the way, several of them were attending the service each evening. And she came up and said, well, you communicate. May I say to you, you don't have to adopt their vocabulary. You can communicate. You can identify by taking your place as a sinner alongside of them. They're sinners and we're sinners. And we both need a Savior, and we can all understand that. It's perfect nonsense today, and we have some ministers and trying to identify doing some weird things in order to do it. And they apparently are not getting the message through. I believe the message can be gotten through. Now, we find here that God has come down to deliver these people. And he's making it very clear to Moses what he's going to do, and that he's a holy God. And when you and I approach him, we don't approach him with a hail fellow well met approach. We don't give him that pat on the back. That's not the way you approach God. And if the Lord Jesus came into where you are or where I am right now, glorified Christ, we go down on our face before him, and I don't care who you are, you'd go down on your face before him. Every knee's going to bow to him someday. How will you notice? And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. I thought it was the angel. It was. Well, didn't the angel call? Yes. Well, then why does it say God call? Because it's the Lord Jesus, friends, and he's God. And he said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Here is a man brought up in the court of Pharaoh, trained in the culture and civilization of that day, and it was a great one. He has spent now 40 years in the wilderness, and he's had a great training out there, but you know he doesn't know enough to take off his shoes. He doesn't know enough to do that. How many people today, they are learned in the wisdom of this world, but they are so ignorant of God so ignorant of his word. And now he has to be rebuked and told to take off his shoes. Take off your shoes, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. God now is teaching him a great lesson that has to do with the holiness of God. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, when we say that he could look upon God, he could look upon the revelation of God. The Lord Jesus, when he came to this earth, actually was veiled in human flesh. It can still be said, "...no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father... He hath exegeted him. He's led him out in the open, where now you can know God. And the only way you can know him, of course, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, will you notice, we're told here, God says to Moses, I've seen the affliction, I've heard their cry, and I've come down now to deliver them. And in verse 8, And i am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good land, to a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And unto the place, notice that, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Lecterites. In fact, all the lights are there, by the way. And God's redemption always involves... It's a redemption out of and a redemption into. That is redemption. God has not only saved us from sin, but he's saved us for a holy life. That is the thing that he's made, I think, very clear. Notice what Paul says in the second chapter of Ephesians, verse 5. He says, "...even when we were dead in sin..." "...He hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved." Now, that's from Egypt, you see. "...And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." Now, he's brought us up and given us a position in Christ. And if you're saved today, you are completely saved. And you're saved as much today as you'll be a million years from today. Because you're in Christ. You've been brought out of Adam, put in Christ. You've been brought out of death and put into life. You've been brought out of darkness and brought into light. You've been brought out of hell, if you please, and put into heaven. That is redemption. It's out of, into. Now, God says, I'm going to take the children of Israel, and I'm not only going to take them out of, I'm going to take them into A good land, that is the salvation of God. That's redemption. Now listen, verse 9. Now therefore, behold the cry of the children of Israel, Is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression, Wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, That thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, do you notice what's happened to this man? Forty years before this, he was ready to deliver them, cocky as he could be, almost arrogant. He went out, you remember, he slew an Egyptian and delivered one of his brethren, because he thought they'd understand And he looked this way and that way, but he didn't look up. He thought he could do it himself. Now God has trained him for 40 years on the backside of the desert, and he's learned how weak he really is. He's learned that he can't do it himself. And now he's saying, who am I? I can't do it. My friend, now God can use him. That's the way God has to train all of his men. Have you ever noticed that he does that very thing? God had to take that boy who could slay a giant and put him out into the caves and dens of the earth, and he was hunted like a partridge. And he found out how weak he was. And then God could make him a king. God took Elijah the prophet, who could walk into the court of even Ahab and a Jezebel and Say that's not going to rain, but according to my word and he said, I'm not apt to say anything either. Soon he just went stalking out. My you'd think he was a pretty big brave man, but really he wasn't. God put him out on the desert, that's where God trains this man. And out there on that desert, why it was a drought, and he put a little stob down in the brook there, and every day he measured it, and the brook was drying up. And he could just look down at that brook and say, My life is no more than a dried-up brook. And that's what it is. And when that man found that out, and he also spent a little time looking down in an empty flour barrel, and he ate out of that. He found out that he was nothing. And when he did, then God can use him to face the prophets of Baal and to bring fire down from heaven. Paul says, Paul had to learn it too. When we are weak, then he says we're strong. That certainly is a paradox. But now that's what God has been doing for Moses. Now Moses can be used. You know why? Because he thinks he can't do it. And now that he can't do it, and he knows he can't do it, God can do it through him. One of the reasons that many of us are not used to God today is because we're too strong. Have you ever stopped to think about that? We're actually too strong for God to use us. And he can't use us when we are that. It's out of weakness we're made strong. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. Here's Moses and Paul the Apostle, too. And if today you are willing to be weak and recognize you're weak, and we'll let God move through you. It's amazing what he can do through a weak vessel. Most of us, now I repeat it, are too strong for God to use us. Now verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And this was something that naturally was a question for Moses. And I'm sure all of us would have had the same question. The problem now is the children of Israel won't accept me at all. And God had told him back in verse 12, he said, Certainly I'll be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee, when thou hast brought forth a People, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. But the question of Moses is, how am I going to get them to this mountain, you see? Now, notice what God says here to this man. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto thee. Now, I think there's more wrapped up right here in this name than has ever been brought out of it, and I can't spend time here other than to say, actually, just a few very primary things concerning this name. It is that name that is called the tetragram. We translate it as Jehovah. It's been translated as Yahweh. How do you pronounce it? Well, it became a sacred name, a holy name to the children of Israel to the extent that actually they did not know how to pronounce it because they didn't use it. Do you say Jehovah or do you say Yahweh? Well, I candidly, I don't know what you say. And I haven't found anybody that can tell me what to say. And this is the name that he's to be known. Now, back in Genesis, he is the Creator. He is Elohim that he called himself the mighty god but here he is the self existing one i am who i am it could be translated like that thus shalt thou say unto the children of israel i am hath sent me unto you the existing one over in psalm 135:13 He says this, "...Thy name, O Lord, endureth forever, and thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations." Now, that name is the name that's here. I am who I am, the self-existing one. The important thing, I think, for us to see, this is the name that is the name that speaks of the fact that God is that God exists. Or, let me read Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God, the self-existing one, the one that is the Creator, the one who is the Savior. And this is the one that I believe is none other for us today than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's to tell the children of Israel. Now, notice verse 15, "...and God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham." The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. That is, the God that appeared unto Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the procedure that he is to use. Verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, unto the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to my voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. For I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. I'll stretch out my hand, I'll smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I'll do in the midst thereof, And after that, he'll let you go. The thing is here that God is giving to Moses the agenda. This is the procedure. He's to go first and call the elders of the children of Israel and to let them know God has called them and that he's come down now to deliver them. Then with the elders, he's to go first to Pharaoh and he's to break it gently to him. He doesn't say, we're going out now all the way back into the land of Canaan. We're leaving you for good. But we just want to go three days out in the wilderness to make a sacrifice unto our God. Now, he says, Pharaoh won't let you do that. Then he says, that will open up the campaign that I'll carry on against the gods of Egypt. And after that campaign, though I will show mighty wonders, he'll still not let you go. But finally, I will bring one that will cause him to let you go. And God says, I've come down, now i deliver you. And this is the way it's going to be. When we get to the plagues of Egypt, we'll see it actually was a battle of the gods. I think this is one of the most remarkable things. But we have so many wonderful things coming up here in this book of Exodus. So let me move on. Now, after that, God says, he'll let you go. Verse 21, And I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. It shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor. Now, notice that word borrow. It's not steal. Actually, what it means is to take back wages. You see, they were slaves. They were not being paid. And now God says, you're going to collect your back wages. And that's what they're to do. And of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver, jewels of gold, raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. Just think of it. There were several hundred years of slavery. And God says, you're going to collect back wages for all of that. And I'm going to send you out of the land of Egypt.